This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DTC pod. I'm your host, Jay. And today I'm joined with a special guest, Jeremy Kai. He's the founder and CEO of Italic, a luxury goods company that sells products made from the same manufacturers as top brands with zero markups. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I know you are friends with Ramon, our CEO, so we're super excited to have you here. Um, Before we kind of dive into the really cool Italic membership model that you have, and that's what we're going to be talking about, I'd love to hear just a little bit about yourself and Italic in your words. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, so a little bit about me. Grew up in Chicago, went to school out east in, in Boston, and I had your very classic, stereotypical you know, tech journey of dropping out, going to San Francisco, doing a couple accelerators and, and things here and there, and ultimately found my way towards starting Italic, which is a very different you know, thing than, uh, than what I was doing previously, which was kind of an enterprise software company. So Italic, in my own words, is a membership that costs $100 a year, and all of our members get access to the 1,000-plus products that we've designed and developed ourselves at prices where we don't actually make money. So it allows us to price pretty aggressively relative to our competitors, both in direct-to-consumers brands as well as traditional incumbent brands, typically averaging between 60 to 70% lower prices than, than those comparable brands. We recently launched the membership. So prior to this, for the past two years, we ran a transactional model of kind of a, a more classic direct-to-consumer playbook of making money through uh, marking up our products. Um, and we really did that to build our product assortment to the place that it is today before we were ultimately able to you know, launch a membership that people would be willing to subscribe to. That's awesome. Yeah, I think your model is really unique. I mean, I really haven't seen anything out there like it. So I'm excited to dive into this and just talk a little bit more. So I know you mentioned that you have kind of been an entrepreneur before you were kind of in the enterprise software space. Like what has your experience as an entrepreneur been like? Take us through that journey. Yeah. (laughs) Normally I get asked questions about e-com and and stuff like that. So it's great to kind of think about the other end. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, Italic is is not my, my first startup, thankfully. And I think we've had a lot to gain as a result of that. My first kind of big company, if you will, is, is a company called Fountain.com. It's an enterprise HR software company that does hiring automation for very large workforces for companies like, you know, Airbnb, Uber, Safeway, Taco Bell, so on and so forth. And I think, you know, to, to make the jump between the heavy like enterprise B2B world to Italic is, is actually very, it's completely, you know, different in terms of how we operate and, and the people we we have on the team and and the type of things that we we really prioritize as a company. But I think there's a couple of things that that have definitely helped. You know, the context for Italic really came from the fact that like I dropped out of school to build an enterprise software company, which I don't think anyone in their right mind drops out of school to do. And you know, there was very little, I think, passion and excitement for what we were building. And ultimately, you know, my family background actually comes from the manufacturing world, and 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 I think having witnessed like that for decades on end, you realize that it's an incredibly difficult business, but it's also an incredibly inefficient business. That I think applying the same level of you know marketplace or technology kind of like innovation into could actually lend to a lot of benefits to both manufacturers as well as consumers, not so much the in between. So the ideal for for italic and like. 
guess to, to kind of answer you more directly, like where it was inspired by was largely the idea of like, hey, in, in the early 2010s, there were a lot of these directly consumer brands that came out, you know, with really large and loud proclamations of we cut out the middleman, we're democratizing luxury, etc. And the reality is, you know, they weren't necessarily cutting out the middleman in the sense of the product or the margin for giving it back to the customer, but instead they were effectively replacing a Target or Nordstrom's or a retail distribution with an online vendor such as like Facebook or Google for the same level of customer acquisition. And, and to a customer, you know, the, the product quality and the product price points largely haven't changed with whether it's directed to consumer brands or, or legacy incumbents. So I think on the manufacturing lens, like, you know, we never really cared whether you were a DTC brand or a legacy brand, like to, to us, you're all the same. And like you place large orders with us, we make a small sliver of margin and then you take our products that you bought and sell them for five to 10 X. And that's really how the game was played. I think for Italic, like the real like inspiration came from marketplace enabled companies such as like an Uber or Airbnb in which like none of them actually took inventory. And instead they empowered these individual, let's say hosts to monetize their own places. And, you know, their, their model was to take a small commission or take rate off of that. So I think in the same lens, Italic's goal was always not to sell marked up products to your customer, but instead it was to actually effectively replace the brand and take that and the retailer out of the supply chain and instead, you know, provide the savings that we would ultimately have taken to the customer and also provide significantly higher yield per unit to a manufacturer. The insight really was like, hey, whoever owns the inventory owns the upside. And at the end of the day, none of the manufacturers in the world really owned the upside aside from, you know, the small sliver that they took from the brand margin. So I know that was a long-winded answer, but there was a lot of, I think, corollaries that I could dive into and, and things that were, you know, very different about the two models and how, how I think one has lent to, to the other, but yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for going through that so thoroughly. So one of the things that I know Ramon, our CEO, was talking to me about is just the crazy journey that you've taken to get to Italic. Like, I think he had mentioned that you would move to China as well and live there. Tell me about like all of that, all of the, the buildup that was to Italic there. Yeah. So, you know, typically when you build a brand on the, you know, let's say the classic New York, like venture back style of direct to consumer brands, like you'll raise some money from friends and family, you'll, you'll work with an industrial design firm or something like that. You'll find a manufacturer and you'll buy inventory and then you'll, you'll start selling. And, and that's really it. Like you can get from start to launch, like within a year, I think if you really know what you're doing, you can do it in under six months. But really, like, that's how these brands get started. And from there on out, it's pretty much the same model. Like, yes, they might introduce new products here and there to, you know, increase frequencies or lifetime values once their customer acquisitions costs start rising. But like, that's kind of the game. Italic was a little bit different. And we don't actually work on the same model where brands buy inventory and sell it for 10x and retailers buy inventory and sell it for 2 to 3x. Instead, because we're actually not incentivized now to sell our products, but instead sell the membership, we had to spend a long time, much longer than the average brand would, to develop our product assortment. So now we have over a thousand SKUs on our site that we've all designed and developed ourselves. As you can imagine, that's many times what the average brand would be at our stage of business and age. And I think the first couple of years, it involved, you know, to your point, living in China, living in Italy, building really deep relationships with our manufacturers. And I say that with a grain of salt because we met with over I think I met like a manufacturer at least one every day. And like we met with hundreds and only three said yes. And we had a really high bar for our manufacturers as well. So it's really, you know, the difference for our model is like we actually don't buy our inventory. Instead, our manufacturers work with us 
and they actually float us the inventory for a higher yield per unit. So if they can capture, you know, two to three times larger profit margins than they would selling to a, the inventory to a direct, directly consumer brand or allocating their resources or production line to a, you know, incumbent brand, then they're willing to make that trade and put up the capital if they're able to access a much higher yield per unit. So I think from that lens, like, obviously it's much different going to a vendor and saying like, hey, you give me money and you put down money to produce inventory for us versus like we give you money to produce products for us that we would sell at a much larger markup. That's why, you know, it was really critical for us to have like boots on the ground and really understand our manufacturer network and supplier network first and foremost for the first two years before we could ultimately, you know, launch the actual product, which was the membership. Now, you know, you talked about kind of the founding of Italic and how important it was to build those relationships. And I know you mentioned and hinted on the membership model. So how much of that membership model comes from your experience in, you said you were doing enterprise software before. So how did those two like relate? Like how did you land from enterprise software to direct to consumer? And I know you said you had ties to manufacturing, but what was that thought process like to be like, hey, I'm going to totally go away from this idea of just like the movie dropping out, going to Silicon Valley and doing the whole software thing to doing a, a direct-to-consumer thing. I think the irony is the fact that like back in, let's say 2013 to 2017 or so, there was an era where like the investors would say all the big exits came from consumer. And then I think like more recently over the past couple of years, it's, and especially this year, like it shifted predominantly to, you know, enterprise cloud being the, the primary driver of tech value and, and not just public, but private markets as well. And the interesting thing is like, I think a lot of that is, is to do with the fact of how they monetize in consumer commerce, at least you always have to be chasing your next customer. You always have to be, you know, trying to win back that customer and pushing sales constantly in which it's like, Hey, buy my product, buy my product. And in software, at least like, you know, most of these products nowadays are not, you know, it's not on-prem. It's not like it's typically sold on subscriptions, right? So once you win a customer, now your job is to retain that customer. And I think like the monetization is substantially, it's very different, but it's also substantial. It's valued substantially higher now, whereas, you know, direct-to-consumer brands used to be valued off of top-line revenue and they would have fantastic growth on top-line up until around the 100, 150 million mark, after which they would typically plateau Software typically takes a lot longer to get going. It's much harder to acquire a subscriber than it is typically to acquire a transactional like one-time purchase. But the the flip side of that is like you've got that person and if you do a good job and you provide value to them, you know, you've got them for a much longer extent of time with much less effort to get them back. And I guess like on that note specifically, you know, now software is valued at a at a multiple of top line because the gross margins are so high, typically in the, you know, north of 70% mark. Whereas in e-com, like and commerce in general, it's typically valued on a EBITDA basis. So it's like, whereas historically it wasn't so. So nowadays, like I think for Italic, like one of the big incentives for us was to, you know, remove the need to constantly be selling new products to customers. We always have to be introducing new products. That's, you know, still part of the game. But the goal really isn't now to constantly be like, have this, you know, transactional nature of like, hey, Jay, like, please buy my product. Like we launched something new, please buy my product. Instead, it's like, hey, if you're a member, we're not going to push you to buy stuff because we know that it's up to you. But if you do decide to buy the membership, our job now is to provide the best possible value to you, whether that's providing great customer service, providing like, you know, an endless selection of new quality goods that you can purchase for rock bottom prices at quality levels that are comparable to the brands that you would ordinarily shop for. 
and do so so that you also hopefully tell your friends about it. So I think in that lens, it's like it's much more of a you know a customer centric like how do we. It's not so much like how do we win the next customer and hopefully make money on that transaction, but it's more so how do we, you know, hopefully provide such a great membership experience so that you're going to be avid, you know, you're a really loyal fan and tell your friends about it. And also for us, like, hopefully we'll be able to keep you for years to come. Yeah, that's really interesting that it's it's just such a different way. Like, you know, it's more on the, it's not on the hard sell. Like, I feel like I get so many ads nowadays from brands for direct-to-consumer or even brands that might be on retail and doing e-commerce ads all the time from different people trying to sell me something and different products. So I want to ask, like, I am a marketer myself, and obviously marketing is a huge part of the growth of a lot of these direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands. So how different was your approach in that sense? Like, obviously, you know, or especially now with this new model, like, you know, you don't have to, like, shove down, like, someone's throat, like a bunch of different ads and stuff like that. So how does that like affect your marketing strategy? I think the big difference in in my mind is that when you're selling products and you monetize through the margin or the markup, let's say like you have, you know, hypothetically 80% gross margin on product and then a fully loaded contribution margin, if you're lucky, is like, let's say 50% or so, which is very like, in my opinion, very healthy. I think in, in, in that lens, you always have to be chasing after the next customer and you're not really incentivized to focus on loyalty so much as you are, you know, and, and this is what you see. Like, I think nowadays in DTC, you, you either see two types of monetization and one is much more common than the other. And, and the first is like, you have to be profitable on first purchase or the latter being like you sell a subscription product, you sell a very high frequency of usage product or something of that sort in which you, your payback might not be immediate, but you're willing to spend a little bit more into it, assuming that you deliver good enough experience. So this might be like, you know, beauty brands, skincare, of course, your archetypes of like Dollar Shave and, and all those types of subscription products, Fun, Stitch Fix. And I think the difference you know, italic kind of falls more so in the latter. Well, we're kind of somewhere in between in which we need to be profitable on, on first transaction, which is the membership. So we want immediate payback. But on the flip side, we don't necessarily want to do so without sacrifice. You know, we wouldn't sacrifice growth for the cost of being like hugely profitable in the first order. The challenge with, I think, classic direct-to-consumer is the fact that typically once you saturate your core market, which happens fairly quickly, and you can you know, get to a pretty large run rate doing so, the cost of acquiring the next customer who isn't per se, like your classic millennial DTC shopper per se starts to climb you know, at a pretty fast clip. And assuming you don't have a large enough you know, product assortment or large enough, you know, offline footprint or whatever it is, you know, you're in a really tough spot because your your top line, you know, doesn't really change on a AOV basis, but your cost of acquiring the customer starts really climbing. Whereas I think on a subscription model, you know, you're incentivized to keep that person for years. So your upside is technically unlimited, but you're capping your annual, in our case, we're an annual membership. So we're capping our annual upside to, you know, $100. So we have to make sure that we're, we're acquiring under that mark. So I think in terms of like the specific metrics that we track, like historically, it would always be, you know, your classic econ metrics like AOV, LTV, you know, frequency. What is the average margin that we're capturing from each product that we sell on a blended basis, on a per channel basis? And, you know, on a, what is our L, like LTV by month six so that we're hopefully profitable by then and, and what have you. But as we transitioned to the consumer subscription model, it became much more focused on the subscription metrics. So, you know, what is the engagement in which we moved a lot of those standard e-com metrics into engagement metrics? If you're buying from us a lot, that means we're delivering you value because we're not making money on those transactions. Are your average orders like growing in size? Where are you purchasing? 
on the acquisition side, you know, are we, are we breaking even day one on the retention side? Are we going to be, you know, do we have predictive indicators as to if you're going to churn, if you're not going to like, what can we do to prevent that from happening? You know, what should our merchandising strategy be to accommodate for what products people want to join versus, you know, stay as a member? There's a lot, I, I think that like, categorically changed. But I think a lot of the stuff that we used to track are now healthy kind of engagement indicators as to if people are like getting usage out of the membership. Yeah. So there's definitely, I, I heard a lot of the terms that you were talking about and it's a lot of, it's a lot of kind of like SaaS B2B metrics essentially in terms of like subscription and, you know, retention and trying to consider like churn, I think you mentioned as well, which is obviously a huge term in, in B2B SaaS, you know, everyone's trying to stop clients from churning and things like that. So it's definitely a different model. But so talking about that, what do you think direct to consumer could take from and learn from B2B and like the software space? If I had to be honest, probably not much. <laughs> you know, most people in, in the space are not doing anything that is subscription related whatsoever. And instead, I think like, you know, the metrics that people typically track nowadays are like contribution margin, you know, cash conversion cycle, you know, stuff like that, that, that does legitimately matter more so if you're running like a cash or capitally intensive business, which is, you know, most direct to consumer or digitally native or whatever you might call these type of like modern brands. I think there are a couple things that are helpful. You know, I think like e-com analytics nowadays is, is actually at the mid tier to like higher, you know, larger brands, like is actually fairly sophisticated in which, you know, people are focused on like channel efficiency or blended contribution margins and things like this. But I do think like what B2B, I guess like I know you, you mentioned like B2B software, but I actually think of it more so as like consumer subscription businesses such as like Calm or Netflix or Spotify. I think to those companies, the goal really isn't so much to monetize immediately, but instead to constantly deliver value to a customer so that they come back. I think the things that you can think about there is like, okay, how do we build an assortment of product that is large enough to support someone coming back? Or how do we build kind of re-upping or um, reutilization or a consistent reason to come back into, into the model versus just like staying on an email campaign or email flow? I'll be honest and say like this probably doesn't apply to like 90% of you know, don't force a subscription into your 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 brand or product just for the sake of it. DTC brands are very healthy if you run them profitably and help run them without like with the right expectations in mind. But I think the second that you think you're a tech company, a lot of things start going south and warping. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I don't know if I have anything like unique to say, but I, I do think it's helpful to like be very conscientious of if you are, if you do decide to, you know, add in a subscription product into your mix, like, or at least like some frequency of, of usage or some reason to re-engage a customer, that it should be very, very deliberate and you should be very data-driven about it. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And, I, and kind of what I took from what you talked about there is kind of just leading with value and doing that. And I think that's the best way to continue to win over a customer. And when you talk about like leading with value, the thing about the traditional like e-commerce model is that someone can purchase something and they don't necessarily have to return back but for you guys and for any other subscriptions out there, it's that you have to constantly lead with value because if the value isn't there, the customer can move away from that and the money just doesn't really make sense there that much where you know, you're, you're trying to hold on and keep that retention. But I think that's where it is. And it's, I think that's something that's great that I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce brands can kind of take away from that and say, how can we constantly lead with value? How can we deliver a product that isn't just there to kind of exist and like fill like maybe 
the short-term need for the customer where, you know, you don't really care about what the the end process is for the customer, right? It's just about making the sale. You kind of want to lead with value. So that way you're considering to, you're continuing to keep them at the top of your mind when they're thinking about making maybe another related purchase or something like that. I think what you just said at the end is, is actually really important to note, which is, you know, the, the recall of, of your brand is, is really important. And you can achieve this in a number of ways. I think like people, you know, founders use over the past five to six years really love to hype on the idea of like community, which I think is this like hypothetical kind of fuzzy term that not many people like actually productize or put into usage outside of like, let's say your, your Instagram channel or something like that. But I think like recall is a really big one, you know, consideration. Sometimes your best customers might not actually convert immediately, but it could be like over there, you know, they might be on your email list for like three weeks before like they purchase or something like that. So, and after purchasing like a win back series, for example, it doesn't have to be just email, but it could be, you know, through a wide range of marketing mixes that they're like suddenly remembered like, oh, I bought from so-and-so brand. Like I should, you know, go back and check out what they have. Or I had such a good experience buying like so-and-so brand previously for this type of category that I'm purchasing that I think like recall is really important. But especially if you need, if your business model requires a repeat purchase, whereas, you know, if you're selling a thousand dollar mattress, like there's actually, it it doesn't really matter. You know, (laughs) like if you made $500 on that (laughs) sale, I think value is important. I, I think like Value is not something that is sexy to talk about, but I think it's like always consistently, you know, appealing to a customer who's rational. On the emotional side, maybe you don't actually tap into value at all. And you're just like, hey, I'm going to sell this $300 t-shirt because I can. And people think it's cool. (laughs) And if you can do that, like, I mean, that's great. We certainly are not that. I think there's like a number of things that you can lead with that work. It really depends on, I think, the, the brand that you are and what you stand for and like, you know, what your customer gets out of out of you and finding that and, and speaking to that is really important. But, but I think it's it's also not something that like happens overnight or happens in like a boardroom. You kind of have to like really go out and talk to your customers. Yeah, that's really insightful there. I appreciate you kind of diving into that a little bit more and having a conversation there on that. So I know we've been talking for a while and I want to ask you a couple more questions before we come to the end over here and maybe shift away. I know we've been talking a lot about it about Italic, but I kind of want to go back a little bit to your journey as a founder for Italic. Like, And you might have talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to just kind of recap it a little bit more. What are some of the challenges that you've faced on this journey that you think maybe that you can highlight for some other founders? Maybe there might be a few, but if there's like three that you can think of, maybe top of mind that you're like, hey, if you're a founder out there, you should definitely try and take this warning sign or something like that. There's endless things that I think we did wrong and, and could learn from, but I think there's a couple of things that I regret not doing sooner. And these are pretty tactical. So for one, you know, I, I came from SaaS, I came from, you know, B2B and like consumer brands are pretty like, you know, like, oh, just put a pretty like thing on it and, and it is what it is. Like work with, you know, one of the New York agencies and you'll get something of, of substance and Basically, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think a regret I made is like, we should not outsource brand. Like brand is this like definitive important thing that you can actually structure and and do so. Like, yes, it's this fuzzy thing, but it's also a fuzzy thing that like is critical that you get right. Otherwise you could put yourself like, you know, years behind, which is actually, to be honest, like what we did with Italic early on, you know, we didn't have a great understanding of our customer. We didn't have a great understanding of how to to message to those specific, you know, tracks of, of customers. The visuals were, were off. I guess basically what I'm trying to say is like, if you don't have brand right, like you're starting off from a rocky foundation. So you know, I would say like invest the time and get it out, but don't like overdo it to which like you're hypothesizing, you know, they're hypothesizing for, 
you know, like months before you can launch a product. I would just say like, go out, talk to your customers, learn about them. Like, who are they? What's what appeals to them? I think like that's something that we did too late into our journey before we really realized like, hey, people aren't like the, the main reason why people buy from Italic is like you're getting a quality good at a price point that is much lower than brand. And that's like simple to say, but it took a long time to arrive to. I think secondly is the importance of performance and understanding where performance marketing actually plays into your, your channel mix. It's very popular nowadays to dismiss, you know, Facebook as this channel that you just kind of like diversify off of once you're, you're saturated. It's really important that you have a deep understanding as to like what does well, what doesn't do well. We're still on, on this journey as well, but I think you don't just simply outsource performance marketing to an agency, assuming that like because they do it for so-and-so brand that they're going to do a good, good job for you. I think it's really important that you actually have like a tactical understanding of as to like, what is my marketing funnel? Like is Facebook top of funnel? Is it actually more so used for you know retargeting or do we actually use email to convert and, and so on and so forth. So having a really strong, you know, performance backbone and competency in-house, or at least like with someone close to the company, I think is really important. And then I think finally, I would just say, you know, I think pivot is like a very hard, like harsh word that I think like people are scared of, or, you know, it has this like negative connotation. And I think like, that's not, you know, ideally you're not pivoting every day, but like, I do think it's, you should be, you should take a pretty flexible approach to your business model, you know, especially if you're early on in the journey and you don't have a lot of legacy, you know, artifacts from what you have been doing for years. I guess what I'm trying to say here is it's okay to be flexible on the business model when you're early, but once that crystallizes and you start pouring gas on the fire, it becomes much harder and much, much, much more expensive to, you know, start changing that model. So while you're still early on, you know, I would experiment with everything that you're personally curious about or are interested in. At the end of the day, you're the founder, you're the boss, so you can do what you want. But I do think like, you know, just because some person on Twitter says to do this or some, you know, you hear some podcast that tells you to do why, like, you know, do I would just listen to your own gut and like, you know, oftentimes that'll lead you to better success than thought leaders per se. That's awesome. Thanks for diving into that. And thanks for sharing that. I think all those tips are really helpful there. So the last question I have before we come to an end on this podcast is, you know, you've got the membership model going now. What's next for Italic? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is the boring one. We, <laughs> we want to get a lot of members and, you know, a lot of products so that we keep our members happy. In terms of the merchandising side, we'll be launching categories such as like pets, fitness, travel, outdoors, more home goods, just stuff that our members have been requesting for a long time now. So I'm very excited about that. And then more, you know, I guess like more tactically, we'll be launching our go-to-market strategy in terms of actually doing our marketing for once. We've been pretty reserved and conservative with marketing to date. So I'm excited to actually start, you know, using our marketing mix to actually acquire members and start being more aggressive on on acquisition there. So, I mean, it's the boring answer, but it's the true answer. <laughs> that's awesome, though. That's that's cool about the expansion piece. I will definitely keep an eye out for that stuff. But Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed having you on here. Before I let you go, where can people learn a little bit more about Italic and the products that you guys have? Yeah, we are italic.com and then at italic on Instagram and, and Twitter. Those are definitely our, our best places to go check us out. But if you ever want to you know, reach me, I'm just J-J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-I on Twitter or Jeremy at italic.com. More than happy to chat. Awesome. Thanks again, Jeremy, for joining us on the podcast. And thanks again, everybody that's out there listening to the DTC pod. We will see you next time. 